Welcome to Overlooked, a podcast by Tunuka Media. My name is Yemi, and I'll be your host for the show. In this podcast, I introduce you to potentially overlooked news stories from around the world. This will include the good, the bad, and sometimes the absolutely hilarious. To keep you informed, I pick up stories that may have been missed by your home news network. The Overlooked podcast is produced every week and covers news articles from the previous week. Come back often, share with your friends, and feel free to add the podcast on your favorite podcast listening app. My goal is to make sure you have a pleasant and engaging listening experience every single time you tune in. So drop me a note on Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Tunuka Media. That is T-U-N-U-K-A Media. Episodes are also hosted on YouTube on the Tunuka Media YouTube channel. Again, that is T-U-N-U-K-A Media. Links to the stories will also be posted in the show notes. Finally, if you come across stories or articles that you think should be featured here, please share them and let us all keep informed. Now, let's get to this week's episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to the show. So how about we jump straight in to this week's episode? So the first story comes out of Nigeria, where a 68-year-old woman had delivered twins in Lagos after 40 years of trying. Wow, that is pretty awesome, actually. A 68-year-old woman, Mrs. Margaret Adenuga, has successfully delivered twins, a boy and a girl, in her first pregnancy, according to the Lagos University Teaching Hospital, Luth. The hospital celebrated a feat it said was the first in the country and across Africa. The mother delivered the babies via elective caesarean section, a Luth statement added. The mother was carrying a pregnancy for the first time, having gone through an in vitro fertilization or IVF. She had gone through three previous attempts. Her husband, Noah Adenuga, 77 years old, told CNN that the couple, who married in 1974, had long desired to have a child of their own. Adenuga said that they never gave up, even after previously failed attempts. The retired stock auditor told CNN that he was convinced that this particular dream would come to pass. Dr. Adeyemi Okunowo, who delivered the babies, told CNN that a specialist team was assembled at the hospital to monitor the pregnancy because of the age of the mother. Well, congratulations to the new parents. A fantastic job well done by the healthcare professionals at Luth. Wish you guys all the very best going forward. In our next story, the ECOWAS has affirmed the election of the Guinea-Bissau president. Months after the Guinea-Bissau disputed election, leaders of the West African bloc, the Economic Community of West African States, otherwise known as ECOWAS, have acknowledged the victory of Umaru Sisko Mbalo after four months of disputes over whether his election was fraudulent. In a statement released Tuesday, the ECOWAS said that the decision followed a thorough analysis of the political situation in the country. However, the ECOWAS has asked Mbalo to appoint a new prime minister and a new government by the 22nd of May at the latest. 
The National Election Commission in Guinea-Bissau declared former Army General and Prime Minister Sissoko the winner of the December 9 runoff vote, and outgoing President Jose Mario Vaz handed over power to him in an inaugural ceremony in February. The Supreme Court of Justice issued rulings requiring a check of the vote tally sheets after party of defeated candidate Domingos Simones Pierreira filed a lawsuit. However, the court has still not ruled on Pierreira's latest challenge, saying it cannot act in the absence of its chief judge who fled the country for Portugal after the election fearing that he was unsafe. Pierreira has accused Embalo of illegally seizing power with the backing of the country's military, which has been involved in nine coups or attempted coups since the independence from Portugal in 1974. Guinea-Bissau's political leadership has fractured since the second round of the presidential election last December, with opposition leader Umaru Sissoko Embalo beating Domingo Simones Pierreira candidate of the African Party for the independence of Guinea and Cape Verde, who had been in power for years. Now, before the presidential elections last year, Guinea-Bissau has suffered for a long time from a political impasse on the appointment of a consensus prime minister under the leadership of former president of the republic, Jose Mario Vaz. Last year's presidential elections were broadly seen as a final solution to the country's political instability. April 25th is broadly considered World Malaria Day, so our next story is going to talk specifically about this. The World Malaria Day is observed on April 25th every year by the World Health Organization to recognize the global fight against the disease. In a lead-up to this year's World Malaria Day, Countries across the globe are responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. While cases of the novel coronavirus in malaria-affected countries currently represent only a small portion of the global total, the situation is evolving rapidly. This year, the WHO has underscored the critical importance of sustaining efforts to prevent, detect, and treat malaria using best practices to protect health workers and communities from the COVID-19 infection. First established in May 2007, at the 60th session of the World Health Assembly, it was initially meant to educate people about malaria. Each year, a theme is selected for the day. This year's theme is Zero Malaria Starts With Me. So basically, Zero Malaria Starts With You. As part of this year's team, it focuses on a grassroots campaign that aims to keep malaria high on the political agenda, mobilize additional resources, and empower communities to take ownership of malaria prevention and care. It has been demonstrated that through country leadership and collective action, the suffering and death from malaria can be radically reduced. According to the WHO, between the year 2000 and 2014, the number of malaria deaths fell by 40% worldwide, from an estimated 743,000 to 446,000. However, in recent years, progress has essentially ground to a standstill. According to the WHO's World Malaria Report in 2019, 
there were no global gains in reducing new infections over the period from 2014 to 2018. As nearly as many people died from malaria in 2018 as they did the year before. Now, urgent action is still needed to get back on track and ownership of the challenge lies in the hands of countries that are most affected by malaria. The Zero Malaria Campaign engages all members of society. This includes political leaders who control the government policy decisions and budgets, private sector companies that will benefit from a malaria-free workforce, and communities affected by malaria whose buy-in and ownership of malaria control interventions is critical to success. Now, join the World Health Organization in a shared effort to get to zero malaria globally. You can check out the WHO website, links will be included in the show notes, and find out how you can support this global effort to end malaria around the world. Now, our next story I thought was important to include here because it kind of reminds us that while the world is evolving to meet current demands, we cannot um, forget the needs of those who work hard to provide the tools that the world needs to get to a better place as we battle through the coronavirus epidemic. So in our next story, specifically, it discusses how in Malaysia there are now concerns that are being raised about the labor conditions and the potential for abuse as the demand globally for gloves has continued to increase. Now, the coronavirus pandemic has seen a demand for medical gloves soar. And this demand has been driven by a surge from both Europe and the United States. About two-thirds of the world's glove supply is made in Malaysia. But there are concerns over forced labor as factories try to keep up with the demand. The industry has been accused of grossly exploiting its workforce. Mostly impoverished migrants from Bangladesh and Nepal. Some workers have claimed that some of the abuse include illegal recruitment fees, long hours, low pay, passport confiscation, and squalid overcrowded accommodations. Now, experts say that such conditions leave these laborers vulnerable to forced labor and debt bondage, which are modern forms of slavery. Now, if you don't know what debt bondage is, it is where a laborer would have to pay a fee to be able to migrate to a different country to go work on the promise of remitting a portion of their income back to the person or the agent who had helped them to migrate to go get the job for the purpose of compensating them for helping to get the immigration. Now, the surge in the global demand for rubber medical gloves had left glove factory workers in Malaysia more vulnerable than ever. While most of Malaysia remains in lockdown, glove factories are back to full production, where employees working around the clock to meet demand. In the rush to ramp up production, some workers have told the Guardian newspapers that some glove manufacturers are failing to protect their own staff. According to the paper, Migrant workers sleep in 24-person dorms, go to work on crowded company buses, and stand shoulder-to-shoulder on 12-hour shifts for six days a week, making social distancing impossible. In return, some earn as little as £7, 
or approximately nine US dollars a day. Now, while this is not the first time such allegations have been raised, the major glove manufacturers have always and historically denied the allegations of worker abuse and maltreatment. As governments and countries globally ramp up the demand of this much-needed supplies, they have an inherent responsibility to redouble efforts to ensure that all workers are protected. Now, this is not just workers at home, but workers abroad who supply and manufacture this equipment in sometimes rather questionable conditions. So this next story takes us to Japan and specifically for the gamer community, you might want to open up your ears. About 160,000 Nintendo game accounts may have been hacked. So Nintendo has said that about 160,000 accounts for its home video game networking service may have been hit up by an unauthorized login. Now, birthdays, email addresses, and other information from the account holders for the game consoles, such as the Wii U and Nintendo 3DS Online, could have been viewed by the perpetrators, officials from within the major Japanese game company has said. An in-house investigation found that an unauthorized login using identification codes and passwords started around early this month. In addition, unauthorized login via the IDs and occurred for accounts used for playing the Nintendo Switch console, possibly leading to illegal purchases of goods on Nintendo's online shopping website. The company will send out emails to users whose accounts have possibly been compromised, asking them to set new passwords. So folks, friends, listeners, I have a switch myself. I am not waiting for Nintendo to tell me to change my password. I am going ahead and changing the password ASAP. So should you. So this next story, I was kind of a little surprised that I didn't see it covered on a lot of major networks. But of course, that's what the Overlook podcast is for. So I'm going to cover it right here. Two Syrian officials are on trial for war crimes in Germany. Now, the first criminal trial worldwide on Syrian state torture began on Thursday this week in Western Germany. The pandemic has led to delays for many cases across the country, but the court deemed that this was too urgent to postpone. The two Syrian defendants, Anwar Razlan, a former colonel, and Iyad Al-Gharib, a former security officer, were arrested early last year, one in Berlin and the other in Frankfurt. Both are believed to have been officials in President al-Assad's security apparatus before defecting from their positions and arriving in Germany as refugees in 2014 and 2018, respectively. The accused faced charges of crimes against humanity committed between 2011 and 2012, including murder and rape. Razlan, a former colonel and the more senior of the pair, is suspected of complicity in the torture of at least 4,000 people, 58 of whom died as a result, at a detention center in Damascus known as Al-Khatib, or Branch 251. Garib is accused of assistance to torture and murder. The indictment from the court states prisoners of Branch 251 are believed to have suffered psychological and physical abuse, including beatings, electrocutions, and being hung from their wrists as well as inhumane and degrading conditions. As joint plaintiffs, six Syrians 
who were detained and tortured at Branch 251 have the right to appear in court. The ongoing conflict in Syria itself was one of the main obstacles to the prosecution so far. In addition, efforts to put Syrians on trial in the, in the International Criminal Court in The Hague have failed. Syria is not a signatory to the ICC or International Criminal Court. Universal jurisdiction, a legal principle that allows states to prosecute certain crimes even if they're committed elsewhere, has provided an alternative route to justice. Germany enacted universal jurisdiction in 2002, and it is under this that a trial is taking place. Universal jurisdiction is also behind a number of other ongoing criminal complaints regarding Syrian state torture across Europe. Campaigners have hailed the process as a first step towards justice for thousands of Syrians who they say were tortured in government facilities after attempts to establish an international tribunal for Syria field. Syria's government has regularly rejected reports of torture and extrajudicial killings in a civil war in which hundreds of thousands of people have been killed so far. In the last of our main stories, we talk about the fact that Saudi Arabia has now abolished flogging as a form of punishment. Saudi Arabia's Supreme Court has now announced that the human rights advances are part of reforms pushed by King Salman bin Abdul Aziz and his son, the kingdom's de facto ruler, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Court-ordered floggings in Saudi Arabia, sometimes extending to hundreds of lashes, have long drawn condemnation from human rights groups globally. The Saudi Supreme Court said the latest reform was intended to bring the kingdom into line with international human rights norms against corporal punishment. In future, judges will have to choose between fines and or jail sentences or non-custodial alternatives like community service, the court said in a statement. The most high-profile instance of flogging in recent years was the case of Saudi blogger Raif Badawi, who was arrested in 2012 and sentenced to seven years in prison and 600 lashes and then resentenced to 10 years and 1,000 lashes in 2014 for blogging about free speech and, in quotes, insulting Islam, end quote. He was awarded the European Parliament's Sakharov Human Rights Prize the following year. However, he remains in jail and is still serving his term. News of the plans to scrap the floggings have been welcomed by human rights campaigners globally. However, some still believe that the move is behind the times and does not go far enough. So that's all for the main stories this week. Now we're going to jump straight into the honorable mentions. The first one is about an Indian inventor who has created a lipstick gun for women's safety. And I'm going to put those in quotes. So Al Jazeera is reporting that an Indian inventor from the northern city of Varanasi has developed security gadgets for women using weaponized lipsticks, purses, and sandals to fight against sexual harassment. Shyam Chaurasia is currently working on patenting his inventions. In our final story and final honorable mention this week, fires had burned near Chernobyl. 
raising concerns of radiation. Fires have burned over the last two weeks and had raged perilously close to the exclusion zone at Chernobyl, the site of what is considered to have been the world's worst nuclear disaster. These fires were no accident. They were set by villagers who were clearing the land for planting. For those who don't know, the Chernobyl incident took place on April 26, 1986, near Pripyat, in the north of the country, which was then part of the Soviet Union. A reactor core fire, sparked by an uncontrolled reaction during a routine test, released radioactive contamination into the air for 10 days. And that contamination rained down on parts of the Soviet Union and Western Europe. Environmentalists have warned that while structures in the area now contain radioactivity, damages to those structures could again release the contamination into the air. Since the fire started, they have been significantly contained. In more recent developments, the International Atomic Energy Agency has said that the increase in levels of radiation measured by the country was very small, so these fires ended up not posing a significant risk to human health. We have now come to the end of another episode. Thank you so much for joining. The outros are coming up real quick, but I just wanted to take a second just to say thank you to all the essential workers who keep the society running. Um, We appreciate you, and I hope even after the immediate crisis has passed, society continues to put value and appreciate you for all you do to make our lives better. And so what I wanted to do at the end of this episode as well is just challenge you to do a random act of kindness for someone around you. People are going through different things. You don't know where they're at. Um, Some people are smiling outside but crying on the inside. Some folks are both lonely and alone. So if you could this week, my challenge to you would be to reach out and do a random act of kindness. If you are able to, uh, donate to a local charity Um, This is not a time to be insulated, but it's an opportunity to show kindness and spread some love into the world. So yeah, just want to take a minute to say first, say thank you. And second, just challenge all the listeners to put themselves out there a little bit this week and just do some random act of kindness. If you're shy, again, donations are always there and often always welcome. Well, Thank you. Have yourself a blessed week. Take care. Till next time. Thanks for listening. As a reminder, the podcast will be released every week. Also, don't forget to follow Tunuka Media on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Connect to say hi or even share your stories that are happening in your local area or region. Nothing is too big or small. Thanks again.